and following along on the reading on this particular, um, it's called an oracle, and I'm going to get into that in just a second. But notice it's very, it's almost, it's kind of hard to follow, isn't it? You feel like you're following along for a moment that all of a sudden it's like all of a sudden the gears have been shifted. So a couple of words about this. But first just to um, let you know about Micah. Uh, Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. So he was around, he was a prophet around the same time as Isaiah, notice it says in Micah chapter 1, verse 1. That's why I said we'll be in verse 5, but we'll go back to the beginning of the book. In Micah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, uh, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz. Now, Ahaz should get your attention because Ahaz was the king that was uh, centered around Isaiah chapter 7, Okay. Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, when he says Samaria and Jerusalem, who is he referring to? Israel and Judah. Samaria being the capital of Israel. Jerusalem being the capital of Judah. It would be the same way as someone would be referring to Washington, D.C., as they reference the United States, or London, referring to the United Kingdom. Um, So you could say in biblical terms, he is speaking to the entire house of Israel, which was a, a term that was used often in the Old Testament. The house of the household, the family of, the nation of, the house of Israel, and and so, um, again, so he's a, a contemporary of Isaiah, and he is giving a, a utterance, an oracle. Um, now, it, it's this idea of an oracle in its literary form, which if you've, if you've studied many of the, of the Old Testament prophets, the oracle, which is the Hebrew word Massah, which is spelled M-A-S-S-A. You could throw an H on it if you want. That's sometimes how it is spelled as well. Uh, An oracle is both judgment. It's an expression of judgment. It is also an expression of salvation and deliverance. That's really important if you're going to really, I think, take seriously the study of, of end times prophecy and I think you have to consider the Old Testament prophets if you are going to study end-time prophecy. They, they bring in a part of the piece of the puzzle. That may be an understatement, actually. They may say a whole lot more than what we think that they say. Although, I... I do differ with some on how the Old Testament prophets have been interpreted. Um, but an oracle pronounces both judgment and salvation. Salvation is another word for deliverance. Judgment and deliverance. And the two go hand in hand in much of the end time Old Testament prophecy. 
the two go hand in hand. Um, so this word oracle, again, the Hebrew word masah, is a pronouncement. It literally means a lifting up the voice, a lifting up of the voice. So it's a considered by Old Testament uh, uh, scholars, it's considered a technical term uh, to introduce a message from the Lord. Or if I want to be more precise, a message from Yahweh. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 1, the word of the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's, there, it's, it's written that way in, in the English because it is a transliteration from Hebrew to English of the proper name of God, which we think is probably Yahweh. Now, Jehovah is not wrong either. The name Jehovah, we do see it um, at times used in the Old Testament as well. When When they come and knock on my door, I always use the name Jehovah. When Jehovah Witnesses knock on my door, but I, I prefer the name Yahweh, um, and and remember the name of God was revered so heavily by the Jews that they would not spell out His full name. So the name Yahweh, uh, which is now it's spelled backwards, but it's the, the, the English equivalent would be Y H W H. And so they insert the Y between the Y and the H they insert an A, and between the W and the H they insert an E. Um, it's probably correct. But because the Jews had such a reverence for the name of God, they would never write out God's name fully in any kind of writing. They would always skip over the vowels and just write out the consonants. If you've been to a Jewish website, um, often it is they will spell God G hyphen D. So they still carry that tradition today there's even tradition and i haven't chased this down well enough but there's even tradition that the the scribe who was uh copying uh the text would actually go in and and take a ritual bath as well before they wrote the name the holy name of god and and so there the, the incredible respect and reverence for the name of god um and they didn't like to pronounce it, didn't like to write it. So it, it kind of got a little lost in the translation. But it's, it's the word of Yahweh that came to Micah, uh, and it's concerning the house of Israel, the full house of Israel, both northern and, su- and southern tribes, which is interesting about that because the northern tribe had gone full-blown into apostasy. The southern tribe was not far behind. Now, this is in the 800 B.C., somewhere around 730 to 720, uh, anywhere from 7, maybe even 750 to about 730, uh, which might be a good time frame to to fit this all in. Um, But God is still raising up prophets to speak a oracle to them, a 
oracle or it's like it's almost like a literary form of poetry but don't think in english poetry where everything has to be a rhyme or a rhythm right it's 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 constructed differently uh but it's a pronouncement a lifting up of the voice and it's a technical term from the message of the lord um so and so each one of these oracles and there's three of them in the book of Micah. We just read the third one, or I should say Gary and Jeff just read the third one for us, which is found in Matthew 5. Um, three oracles that are given to us in the book of Micah. And uh, notice, too, that it, it in verse 2 of chapter 1, Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. So, and let the Lord God, notice a different spelling because it's a different Hebrew word, Lord Elohim, or uh, uh, Lord would be, um, uh, my mind went blank, I apologize. God is actually Elohim. Or actually, I'd have to look this up because God is capitalized. So it's probably Elohim Yahweh. Elohim means God. If 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 I if I left, hopefully I didn't get too far out in front of you. But then you have God is in capital letters, so it's probably Lord Yahweh. Uh, to be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. Where's the holy temple of God? It could be Jerusalem. Sometimes it is Jerusalem, but He's writing to an apostate people. And he's calling the entire earth to listen. He's establishing his supremacy from his throne in heaven, I believe. I think what he's, what he's saying here. So it's a declaration to all the people and to all the earth. Um, now the thing about these declarations is often they do not follow a chronological order. And that is important to understand in reading Old Testament prophecies is that they do not always follow a chronological order. Second of all, they are layered. What do I mean by layered? You will have an oracle or a, an utterance given or a prophecy given. Um, and if you noticed, again, when we read verses, and I... And I, I, I um, I cut you off at verse 5 in chapter 5, but actually in verse 6, it even says, they shall, they shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod. Nimrod is a who? Who's Nimrod? Where does the name Nimrod come into? He was the one who built the Tower of Babel on the plain of Shinar in the book of Genesis, which is a direct reference to his descendants, otherwise known as Babylon. Without jumping into this tonight, because I'm not prepared and this is heavy enough as it is, that line of the descendants of Nimrod, because Nimrod said what, essentially, that w and the builders of the Tower of Babel said essentially what? We will be like God. They went ahead and recommitted the sin that was done by Adam and Eve in the garden. 
and now there will be nothing that will be, God even says, there will be nothing they cannot do. So it's this, the Babylonians, the descendants of Nimrod, are symbolic of those who attempt to attain a status of deity without coming through the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. They do it on their own, in other words, they are, or they attempt to do it on their own. And this idea of Babylon is, follows all the way through the Bible, all the way even into the book of Revelation. That was for free, because um, I don't want to unpack that. But, but understand that there is so much continuity uh, given in the Bible, although sometimes you even have to be careful with that in interpreting certain Old Testament texts, because sometimes there are variations. But nonetheless, um, the oracles are often layered between, remember I've talked about this before, near fulfillments, far fulfillments. In chapter 5, again, at the end of the oracle, it starts talking about who? The Assyrians. Which, does that have anything to do with the birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem? That's a, it's almost a trick question. It might. I still haven't traced that down. But the, uh, the Assyrians are interesting people because they were raised up by God to inflict judgment upon the northern kingdom. It's given to us in the book of Isaiah. But then the prophet Isaiah turns around and prophesies judgment upon them because they didn't know when to stop. And they were very harsh. And they were very cruel. They were given, a, you could say, almost a responsibility by God, but they mismanaged it. They were not good stewards of it. And they got blood in their eyes. Again, what did we look at on Sunday very briefly? Isaiah chapter 2, they will study war no more. And so God's not, God was not happy with, their, with what they did to his people, even though he raised them up to do it. So what an incredible, see, this is where, where quite frankly, it's here. I think it's important to recognize, but I cannot separate the free will of man and the sovereignty of God, but they're both right there. And they both run parallel to each other. And to, to really try to define where one ends and where the other begins to me is, is almost a futile exercise because, the, the, I mean, I think it's above our pay grade. But nonetheless, the scriptures do speak of both. God is sovereign and yet we are responsible. And yet we have free will. Judgment or deliverance, wrath, yeah, I think so. I think he, he, he defines it. He calls them out. But, but even to, to back that up, just to, just to touch, uh, Clay, um, in the book of Isaiah, and, and I, I don't want to try to um, support this point any more than, than in plowing in the book of Isaiah because I do want to get into 
Micah chapter 5, is he calls these nations to be his instruments of judgment. But then he judges them by other nations because they took the judgment too far. Which is interesting about that. Why, why did he not just rain fire and brimstone on them like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah? You know, Sodom and Gomorrah and fire and brimstone had a sense of finality to it. And the judgment from Gentile nations, non-God-fearing, non-God-acknowledging Gentile nations who had their own sets of false gods, you have to think that even within the dynamic of that, there was a sense of grace at least an opportunity to repent. And I think Habakkuk is very clear on that, uh, which he is prophesying the judgment of Judah at the hand of the Chaldeans. Who are whom? The Babylonians. These declarations of these oracles do not always follow a chronological order. But what's interesting about chapter 5 is... The shift, the incredible shift, because if you back up, and I know we, didn't take, we don't have the time to look at it, but I'm, I'm going to just kind of touch on a couple of verses. Um, if you back up all the way into chapter 3 of Micah, and you read in verse 11, or if you even back up even further to verse 9, now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, the rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert equity, all equity, who build up Zion with bloodshed. Now think about that because it was the blood of Abel that cried out to God from the ground after Cain slew him. God is very serious about bloodshed. And Jerusalem with iniquity. Her heads judge for a bribe. Okay, the heads of Jerusalem judge for a bribe. And her priests, that's Jerusalem again, teach for pay. And her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? No harm can come to us upon us. So here's something to consider. They are saying this falsely in verse 12. God's with us. God's with us because we are successful. God's with us because we got a religious racket going here, and God's not going to depart from us. And, and so here's this, this idea of spiritual self-deception on a grand scale. Spiritual self-deception. And then following on the heels of that, you have the first of the two oracles in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Where it says, now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counsel perished? For pains have seized you like the woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pains. For now you shall go forth from the city and you shall dwell in the field. And to Babylon you shall go. There 
uh, you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. You see, in Jeremiah's day, they should have read this. Now, Jeremiah's day is over 100 years, more like about 150 plus years later. Follow me? And the Babylonians lay siege on Jerusalem, and the false prophets say, God's with you, we're going to withstand them, he's going to defeat them, he's going to deliver them into your hand. And Jeremiah alone says, surrender to them, they will treat you well. Go with them. They're going to, you're going into captivity. This is God's judgment. You're going into captivity. God's going to do this. He's behind this. To such a degree that when the Babylonians took over Jerusalem, they let Jeremiah go because they thought he was on their side. Because he told them to surrender to the, Bab- the, 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 the Jews. He told them to surrender to the Babylonians, and they went and do it. He was the only prophet of God uh, during that time. Um, at least that we know of. And, and so you have the, these oracles, that, and this is a, kind of a nearer fulfillment oracle that's given in uh, verses 9 and 10, which may have a latter fulfillment, I don't know. There's a lot of discussion about what, it, what is the place of Israel in today's time and in end-time prophecy. And I think a lot of it is very misunderstood, um, personally. That's just my opinion. But, um, and then we, we have, in verse 11, you have another oracle of, of chapter 4. Now also many nations have gathered against you who say, let her be defiled and let our eye look upon Zion. Zion is another name for whom? Jerusalem. Okay. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. So he's talking about the nations who come against Jerusalem. So here's, I think, another example, Clay, that what you were saying later. They're being raised up, if you will, but they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't know the thoughts of the Lord. No do they understand his counsel, for he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. What do you do with sheaves to the threshing floor? What do you do with uh, that? What's that about? You're you're separating the wheat from the chaff, and you do it by beating on it, and then casting the chaff into the air, and the wind carries it off, and the grain falls to the ground. So that's part of judgment, this separation of the, the sheep from the goats, judgment or deliverance. That's part of the day of the Lord. which is really a far cry from this idea of this secret, all of a sudden we're going to be caught up into the air and, and seven years uh, with the Lord while all the turmoil takes place. That, that this, to me, that's, when I read the Old Testament's prophets, I don't see any room for this idea of a pre-trib rapture because it, it, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit what the Old Testament prophets have proclaimed. I know that that's probably pushing against some of your understanding of, and, and I know of some of your understanding of what you've been taught. But it doesn't fit, folks. Um, that's just my thought. Um, and, thanks, Harv. 
your mileage may vary. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, and I will make your horn iron. The horn is, is the, the symbol of, of power, and your hoofs will be bronze. Bronze in the Bible is a symbol of judgment. And you will beat in many pieces many peoples, and I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. So this is a picture, it sounds to me, like God is raising up his people to be the hand of judgment upon these others. Is this near? Is this far? Is this both? And then it goes on, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughters of troops. This is verse 1 of chapter 5. He has laid siege against us, and they will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. I skipped over something. I'll go back to it in a second. But let me finish this. This might be, it's possible that verse 1 is describing the siege of Israel. Jerusalem, which was Sennacherib's siege upon Jerusalem, is also recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 18 and 19, uh, which was around early early 800s, no, late 800s, which means 730, 720 B.C., or it could refer to Nebuchadnezzar coming in in 586, 580, uh, 588 to 586. Uh, that's a possibility as well. So Sennacherib essentially took over uh, part of the northern kingdom. He didn't finish the job, but he tried to take over the southern kingdom and almost did, with the exception of Jerusalem. And then again, he was he was pushed back by the army of the... Of the uh, um, by the angel of the Lord who went out and slew the Assyrian army, and then he retreated, and that's when he was killed uh, by his, uh, his uh, cabinet, you might say. So they did a coup. Um, but what is interesting to back up in verse 1, now if I've left you so far, if I've lost you anywhere, speak up, because this is not easy. It's not easy to teach. It's not easy to take in. But the context that we have for the fourth chapter is now in verse 1. Now it shall come to pass on the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and the people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. I'm going to, well, you can continue reading this, but notice at the end of verse 3, neither shall they learn war anymore. Does this sound familiar? I read it to you on Sunday, but I didn't read it to you out of Micah. I read it to you out of Isaiah Isaiah chapter 2. It's almost word for word. Um, But I believe Micah was given this, word as well. Um, So you have this idea of 
in the last days, in the latter days, or the, um, the, the, I know the ESV says latter days. Christian Standard Bible says last days. New American Standard says last days. Uh, it's, it's referring to the last days. So this is an end time prophecy that we have here. So you have this end time prophecy with a future triumph in Zion. As we read in verse 1 of chapter 5. Now gather yourselves in troops, O daughters of troops. He has laid siege against us and they will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you. So that's a pivot. Now whenever you hear phrases like but you. Know that that is a pivot. That is a shift in focus of the prophecy. That is a shift in the focus of the oracle. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me. Who is the me here? Yahweh. Yes, God. God the Father. Me, the one to be ruler in Israel who's going forth are from old, from everlasting. So what he's doing here is he's referring to Bethlehem. Now, who else was born in Bethlehem besides Jesus? David. David was from Bethlehem. His family was from Bethlehem. And what he's essentially doing here, while it is not obvious, you have this royal house, the house of David, because the house of David is overseeing the nation of Judah, correct? The kingly line that we have in the Old Testament that oversees the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, whose capital is Jerusalem, also known as the city of David. Those kings were all descendants of King David. But what he's essentially doing here, what Micah is essentially doing here, is he's taking the royal house of David and he's reducing it to its root. So you have this ruler from Bethlehem, out from Bethlehem, you're going to have this ruler who will come. Um, he will, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who is the ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Now, I've talked to you guys about this word everlasting before. It's the word olam in the, in the Hebrew. And it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating word because it it, it it gives this uh, an incredible visual, if you want to call it that. Um, of beyond the vanishing point. Now, what does that mean? It refers to eternity. In the physical sense, it's... I'm trying to think of, well, sometimes when you get out on Highway 20 east of Bend and you actually get through that canyon and you, you come up over that rise and you hit that first open expanse of high desert 
and you feel like you can see forever. And then all of a sudden, it's like, I, I, I shouldn't be doing this. When I, I never do. I always do this when I'm driving. <laughs> anyway, but I'm paying attention to the road. I'm looking as far as I can down the highway because there's that one stretch that is really straight, right? And it's like you can almost see, you, you get to a point where you can't see any further, right? Does that make sense? The vanishing point. But you could, it feels like you can almost see beyond, especially if you're going 55 miles an hour. Give or take. And that, so the vanishing point keeps, it's a, when you're driving, it's a moving target. You see a little more, a little more, a little more, right? But it's a reference to eternity because it's a reference to that beyond which you can see. That which is beyond which you can see. It, and, okay, think Hebrew again. If it's something that that is beyond which you can see, it also then becomes something that is beyond what you can, what? Comprehend. At least in its fullness. But it's a reference to eternity. It's a reference to one who came from the time before there was time. Because how far does the Hebrew Bible, and that's what it's referred to by some, how far, instead of the Old Testament, how far does the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew Scriptures, is another way, how far does it go? Yeah, how far, thank you. How far backwards does it go? In the beginning, right? In the beginning, God. So that already, you know, Jews really wrestle with these things. They're, they're really good thinkers. And in the beginning, God, in other words, God was already there. So there had to be a prior existence of God. Does that make sense? So God is, God is the ultimate olam. God is the ultimate beyond the vanishing point. God is the ultimate expression of eternity. So out of Bethlehem, the city of which David came from, comes one from beyond eternity. And so... I wasn't planning on going here, but let's see if I can find it real fast. I will go to Isaiah. I think it's two. It might be a little. I'm only going to take a moment to find it. Eleven. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father. So you could make a case, Isaiah is making the case, that the house of David is actually the house of Jesse. But it is the house of David because it was David to whom God not only made king, but did something what? More important than that. Made the covenant. The covenant is hugely important in understanding the Old Testament. Second Samuel chapter 7. Um, 
a branch shall grow up from his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. I'm not going to go into the full detail on that. Um, But what's interesting about chapter 11 is it comes after chapter 10. That's probably the most profound and easiest understandable thing that I've said all night, huh? Isaiah. Because Isaiah 10.34 says, He will cut down the thickets and the forest with iron, and the Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. The Lebanon, the symbol of the, Le- of the, si- the, symbol of the country of Lebanon is th- now and was then what? The cedar tree. Now, when you cut down a cedar tree, it's all over. And that's what this, the, the imagery of the back half of chapter 10 is talking about, about a tree being cut off and cut down. But then he uses that imagery in chapter 11 by saying, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow of his roots. And anyway, the the picture that it is depicting in chapter 11, verse 1, of a tree that is cut down like an oak tree, but when you cut down an oak tree, what what can they do? They start growing a rod. They grow a shoot. They start, because you didn't kill the root. You didn't kill the root. So it's referring to, to the rod will come forth, and a branch shall grow forth from his roots. It's talking about, and, and uh, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. Um, this is quoted out of uh, uh, Luke chapter 4, um, which I won't read to you, but it's talking about the Messiah here again, that the promise of the Messiah is interwoven in spite of the near-fulfilling oracles of judgment upon Judah, even talking about their victory later. Now, I'm in Micah, chapter 4, talking about their victory later. He turns right around and says, there is one coming from outside of, uh, beyond eternity, beyond the vanishing point, who will be born in Bethlehem, who will be a ruler in Israel. And his goings forth, in other words, that word goings forth in the Hebrew, it means his origin. His goings forth or his origin is from eternity. So in a sense, you could say that those goings forth or those origins were also being descriptive of the ministry of Jesus prior to his incarnation. Did Jesus have a ministry prior to his incarnation? I believe he did. The scripture tells us that no one has seen God at any time. And John tells us that as well. But we have instances where you have an angel of the Lord that appears to humanity. We see it in the book of Genesis where the angel of the Lord with two other angels appeared to who? Abraham. 
prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what was the first thing that Abraham did when he greeted those two, three visitors? He bowed down and worshipped. Angels would not allow him to do it. He was with the angel of the Lord. Joshua had the same experience when he's spying out Jericho. I think it's Joshua 7, 8 or 9. Um, close, all right? Anyway, and he goes up to this, this he sees this angel that has this sword drawn overlooking uh, um, Jericho. And he, he, he's cut the nerve to go up to this being and says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And he, but he, and he doesn't even answer the question, he says, but he refers to himself as the Lord of hosts or the angel of the Lord of hosts, which can also be known as what? The Lord of armies. It's a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus Christ. Jacob wrestles with the angel of the Lord all night long at the river Jabbok. And he even says, I've seen the face of God and what? Lived. I believe that was another pre-incarnate appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. But here, he comes as a baby. And therefore, he shall give them up. Verse 3 of, of Micah, I'm almost done. Until the time that she is in labor has given birth, then the remnant, remember we talked about the remnant? Right? You, you looked it up, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. All right, you don't have to do it again, but anyway. Um, uh, the remnant shall return uh, the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of Yahweh, in the mighty name of Yahweh his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. So you have this, this oracle that's given, and we're almost out of time, and I don't, I'm not going to take the time to fully unpack this. You have this oracle that's given that although God essentially gives them up, Israel, a temporary abandonment, if you might, you might say, you have this one who will come and return uh, and stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord which is a reference to whom? It's talking about the same person. Grammatically, it's talking about the same person that verse 2 talked about. It's talking about Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem. So what you have here, and gosh, I really need another half, half an hour to really kind of tie this together, but what you have here is a layering of Jesus' first coming as a baby and his second coming when he, verse 4, he will stand and feed his flock in the strength of Yahweh. Did he do that in his first coming? Well, you could say there were at least pictures of that, the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000, or just two examples. He fed them spiritually, did he not? He referred to himself as what? The bread of life. So to a degree, yes, he did that, but not in the sense of feeding his flock. So that makes him what? If he's feeding his flock, what, who is he? What, what, what is his function? 
Exactly. Shepherd. So we, the, Jesus understands this, and he refers to himself also as whom? The good shepherd. In the strength of Yahweh, in the majesty, in the name of Yahweh his God. And they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. Not just in Israel. Because this book was written, chapter 1, verse 2. Hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, all that is in it. So God is testifying of that which he will do in two separate comings of the Messiah who is from everlasting, beyond the vanishing point, who is outside of our existence. Even though Bethlehem was little among the thousands of Judah. But one will come to be what? A ruler. And that I didn't touch on that hard enough, but that concept of the ruler is prevalent all throughout this oracle, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. So, incredible words of hope. Oracles. Judgment followed by salvation and or, well, salvation slash deliverance. Okay, that would be the best way to categorize it. Which is what we see in other passages, and I'm out of time because I've taken my four minutes now. Um, What we see in other passages prophesied about the Messiah when he comes, he comes in judgment, and he comes with salvation. So it's a twofold purpose of his coming. But he had to come the first time and be a baby. Because he, remember, Micah and Isaiah are contemporaries. Because he also then and will later Fulfill Emmanuel, God with us. Any questions? This is a heavy one, isn't it? I mean, I could have just skipped it off. Yep, the Messiah is born in Bethlehem. Let's keep going, right? But I, I wanted to delve into this and, and help you guys see how oracles, prophetic oracles are often constructed because they're, they're not simple to, to wade through. So any questions, thoughts? It's got to be future, yeah. Which, and that's it was probably Isaiah more than any other book that that gave me thought to think there's going to be a different answer than a preterb rapture. At least that's how I look at it. Although some interpret that book differently. So Saturday night, Christmas Eve, and five. And I'm going to teach a little bit. I don't think I'm going to teach very long. And, and I was going to teach on Isaiah 9, but I don't know if I can do that well. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father, you know. But maybe we'll just kind of touch on him and just give, give you something to. After tonight,